All right, guys, how are we doing this morning? God's good. So, yeah, it's Jeff Johns, so with a G, so G-E-O-F-F, so they're really cool British spelling, okay? Um, and uh, my humor is very dry, by the way, so I'm a dad now, so, so that's, that's just how it works. Um, so, as was mentioned, I work with Ratio Christi, uh, which is a campus apologetics alliance at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, <coughs> and uh, I'll do a bit of an apologetics talk this morning, go through some evidence, make an argument, uh, but first I'll give some slides here on um, a bit about myself. Uh, so this is the fam here, and uh, yeah, so a little bit about myself, I was raised on the mean streets of Appleton, Wisconsin, <laughs> uh, right? Um, that's a joke, because it's, it's a very safe city. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I went to Appleton West, home of the Terrors, which is a really weird name for f what even is that, you know? They put Bucky Badger's head on a fox or, or something like that. Um, yeah, back in the day, I was in a, a, a band down in Appleton called Johnny OK, a uh, ska band. Does anybody know this genre of music? Right. Uh, <laughs> um, so they... Um, they put me in a display case because they thought it'd be like a really artsy band photo here. Um, and my connection to this church is Landon was my youth pastor back in the day uh, when I went to Calvary Chapel of Appleton. You guys know Calvary Chapel and stuff like that? Anybody see Jesus Revolution? Pretty cool movie. Um, yeah, so this is us. We actually played at Life Fest, uh, which was pretty cool in front of like 500 people. It was really fun. Um, yeah, w went to Calvary Chapel Appleton back in the day, um, and uh, yeah, after that I ended up going to Calvary Chapel Bible College in Murrieta, California. Um, I was going to either study art at Oshkosh or uh, become a youth pastor, so this campus looked a lot cooler than Oshkosh, so <laughs> I ended up going there. Um, and Calvary Chapel Bible College was incredible. It, it was like a Christian paradise, like, like, like just palm trees. And um, so got to study a lot of great courses there, good books. The Bible took my first apologetics course. It was very helpful. Um, and after that, I moved to Canada. No, I wasn't wanted by the FBI or something. Um, I lived in Kelowna, British Columbia. Anybody ever been to BC area, v Vancouver area? Um, so I served as a youth pastor there and as, as an intern for three years. This is where it was, a uh, very beautiful area. Uh, that's the Lake Okanagan. It's kind of like Loch Ness, very deep lake. Uh, they say there's a lake monster in there named the Ogopogo. Um, I never saw him, um, but <laughs> got to serve there for a while. Let's see here. Anybody ever heard of Lake Lundgren Bible Camp? Right. So um, I served there as a counselor for five summers. People, uh, thousands of kids know me as the crazy campfire guy. Um, and um, I served there. In summer of 2010, there was a girl there that uh, kind of liked me, but I was sort of oblivious to it. So sometimes, guys, we have that problem. Um, and uh, so finally, I, I got the courage to ask her out. And uh, a year and a half later, we were married right at Lake Lundgren. So this is us getting married up at Lake Lundgren in the middle of winter. So snow was falling. It was very beautiful. Um, yeah, after that, uh, we both worked for Crew or Campus Crusade at St. Norbert College for five years. Got my 
um, cut my teeth in campus ministry, evangelism, stuff like that. And uh, now my other job <clears throat> is I work at Providence Academy in Green Bay, which is a Christian classical school. So I teach worldview and apologetics for the 11th and 12th graders. And that's our new building. It's pretty awesome. Let's see. Uh, I got a master's in apologetics from Luther Rice Seminary uh, in 2019. And um, okay, now for the cute photos. These are the kiddos. So this is August. Um, he's about to turn six. Um, Adorable, absolutely crazy, just insane, just constantly running, right? I don't know how they have the energy. Um, this is Miles. Um, he's three now. Um, he's kind of more like the quiet, like sensitive one, but he's starting to get more of a sense of humor now. And uh, we recently welcomed uh, baby Noel in October um, and uh, holding her there. I know, it's adorable. Uh, so there's the boys with their new baby sister, um, and uh, she's just a complete doll, um, and so she's six months now, and just the cutest. It's just fun to bring her out in public, and people are just like, oh my goodness, you know. Um, so look at what I made. Um, so I live on a farm, actually, in Luxembourg, a small farm. This is literally it. That's not a stock photo. That's a... That's, that's an actual photo. Um, and yeah, we've got, uh, we have a flock of sheep and some donkeys and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so we, we had a llama, um, but he was kind of a jerk because he would always spit at you when, <laughs> when you tried to pet him, so, so we ate him. <laughs> that's not true at all. We... That's a complete joke. We rehomed him. Uh, okay. Okay. So I told this joke at our first Rocio Christie meeting last year on campus, and there was a kid from Ecuador there, and he's like, "You eat those too, <laughs> right?" And he's like, "That's like really good meat," and I was like, "No." But if someone presented me with a llama steak, I would I would not decline. Um, so we got a bunch of sheep. Um, we got some livestock guardian dogs. Um, there's some of our sheep, very cute. We got some baby lambs right now. I basically live on a small petting zoo, if you, if you, if you want to put it like that. Um, all right, so as I said, Rocio Christi, Campus Apologetics Alliance here. Um, apologetics, does anybody know what that term even, even means? Anybody want to take a stab here? Sure, yeah. Yeah, like a defense of a, of a viewpoint. It doesn't mean to apologize or say you're sorry, even though if you're married, you should do that from time to time, right? Um, so yeah, apologetics comes from the Greek term apologia, meaning uh, to speak in defense or in defense of. Um, so it's giving a rational exp explanation for something. And uh, yeah, campus ministry and doing this is really important because uh, as it's been said, so goes the university, so goes the culture. Okay, so if you want to know why our culture is so insane right now, it's because of ideas that have been taught in the university back in the 80s and 90s that are now filtering down to general culture. So that's kind of how ideas work. And so campus ministry is really important because we're kind of right there at, at the point where culture is made. So it's not just about evangelism, it's about culture change as well. Um, a little bit about Ratio Christi, it means the reason for Christ in Latin. 
Uh, started by students at Appalachia State in Boone, North Carolina, and in that part of the country. Um, in 2007, partially in response to the new atheism movement, so basically students were just kind of getting beat up <laughs> with questions from their friends, from their professors, and they kind of wanted to start a Christian club for doubters. Like, how do we tackle this and find some answers? So they got together, and naturally apologetics plays a role in that, so we're serving on over 160 campuses in the U.S. and abroad, which is cool. So we got Purdue, Colorado State, Texas A&M, Rutgers, the Ohio State University, right? I don't know why they put the V in there. They're very insistent. Um, and so, yeah, my mission field now is at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. We've been there for about five or six years. And uh, yeah, we've, we've had, somehow we've survived the pandemic. I don't know how we did that, but the Lord was faithful. Um, yeah, and so we got a number of students involved. Uh, we, we do a lot of tabling, so I got the table in the back there where we just kind of talk with students. We, we, we ask them about their worldview. We share the gospel. Um, so I've talked to Muslims, atheists, shamans, <laughs> um, um, just about anybody you could name. Um, and uh, yeah, and we kind of started the club completely over last year with all new freshmen. And uh, yeah, Brief thing here b before I start, we need your help. So how can you partner with Ratio Christi and reach students in Northeast Wisconsin? Because we're the only Ratio Christi chapter in the whole state, um, and so we need your help. First and foremost, you can pray for us and for the ministry that God would grant us new students and opportunities in the upcoming school year. Um, and Please think about becoming a monthly partner. So we're, uh, I'm a supported missionary, so we depend on the support of individuals and churches. Um, so due to a new baby, in inflation, housing costs, our summer goal is to raise about $1,500 to $2,000 in new monthly commitments by September. So something to think about. Some people do like 50 bucks a month, 100 a month, so you'd be supporting one of the most strategic missions organizations in the whole country. So if you're, if the Lord leads, we've got a table back there. You can chat with me. Um, that'd be great. <laughs> and uh, there's another way you can help too. If you were in my shoes, who would you contact? So to do our summer support raising goal, I don't really know that many people. So if you have someone else that you think might be excited to hear about. <laughs> Uh, oh, I just touched that. That was a loud noise. Um, uh, feel free to reach out to them, and I can make the contact. So, All right, so this morning we're going to look at can I trust the Bible, right? Um, specifically, look at the historical reliability of the Gospels. Have you ever been doing your de uh, devotionals, reading the Gospels, and wondered, how do we know that this stuff is true? Right? Like, how do I know that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are actually telling us uh, the actual story here? Or, or what if this is a, a myth or like a legend? We ask these questions, and if you're not asking it, your skeptical friend will, okay? And uh, so, could the New Testament portrait of Jesus be the result of slow, drawn-out mythical embellishment? This is a claim people make. How do we know that the gospel authors are giving us an accurate portrayal of Jesus? Okay, I've talked with so many students on campus and this is kind of their view. It's like, well, you know, the New Testament, it's a little bit of legend, a little bit of truth. You can't really take it too seriously um, sort of deal. So how do we know? 
And so uh, in scholarship in the past couple hundred years, there's been this, these quests to find the real Jesus. Like, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because um, the assumption is that the New Testament doesn't give us an accurate picture of who he really was. Um, there's been this development of something called the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. They'll say, look, you've got the actual Jesus of history, the real flesh and blood guy who lived, okay, but the Christ of faith, like the Son of God, rose from the dead, did miracles, that's just kind of a myth. That's like what the church believes. But the real historical guy, like we gotta peel back the layers of myth to find the real guy, right? So this is how scholarship has gone in the past couple hundred years. Now I would disagree. I think the Jesus of history just is the Christ of faith, but they, but they make this distinction, don't they? Um, for example, we all know this guy, right? He allegedly gives gifts under your Christmas tree, right? Um, well, who is, who is this guy roughly based off of? Who's, who's this guy? Yeah, this is Saint Nick, right? And so they'd say, look, the Jesus of the church and theology is kind of like Santa, but we want to get down to the real historical guy, right? Saint Nick's pretty cool, by the way. He punched a heretic at the Council of Nicaea. So um, not, not that I'm saying you should go punch heretics, okay? FYI. <coughs> or some people explain it like the old telephone game. You guys remember playing that, right? Where you line up all the kids and then you whisper something into one kid's ear like, I don't know, the Packers are the best team in the NFL, right? And then they pass it down the line and what, what happens at the end? Yeah, it, there's a whole bunch. It's completely garbled. Someone says, I don't know, uh, he said something about meat packers, right, are on strike, right? So some people think, well, the content of the Gospels are the result of this, this oral transmission that got garbled, and what ended up in the text is kind of this kind of mythical legend sort of deal. Or it's kind of like a fish story, right? Your uncle Stanley catches a walleye up north, right? And it's, let's say it's a foot long. Well, how, how big is the fish at the next year's family reunion? It's like three feet long, right? The next year, he says he caught a marlin, right? So some people think, well, maybe that's what happened in the text. It's like this snowballing story as people, I don't know, sat around the campfire and told stories about Jesus, and then it just kind of blew out of proportion. Well, there's a way you can counter this, many different ways, and we're going to look at this morning the offensive side of Jesus. Uh, we're going to utilize something called the criteria of embarrassment. There's a lots of ways to show that an ancient text is reliable, and this is one way. <coughs> now, these slides are crafted for more of a classroom setting. This, this is more of a rhetorical question, but uh, why would embarrassing, shocking, and shameful details in the New Testament text actually help affirm its authenticity and portrait of Jesus? So think about that. Embarrassing, shocking, and shameful details. How would that actually work for a reliability claim? Well, think about this. Uh, certain facts within the text help establish the historical nature of the Gospels through something called the criteria of embarrassment. Um, and historians use a number of criteria to determine if a text is probably telling the truth. Um, and because of this, the, the Gospels are not likely to have simply been made up or mythically embellished. So it, it kind of works like this. If you're recounting a story about yourself from high school, right, this big long story, 
And you include in that story all kinds of shameful and embarrassing things that you did. Are you probably telling the truth? Yeah, you're not giving this super edited account. You're just telling it like it is, warts and all. That's kind of what we have in the New Testament. So uh, Mark D. Roberts in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? He's a New Testament scholar. He says, the early Christian tradition and the four evangelists were willing to pass on the truth even if that truth portrayed their founding leader in an embarrassing light. So it seems like they're trying to give it to you straight, which is key. So this is one of many different ways to show reliability, okay? We could be here all day talking about different lines of evidence. And so almost everyone agrees that Jesus is an inspiring figure. Almost every student I've talked with on campus respects Jesus in some way. Like, like he's a great spiritual leader, right? He's a, he's a great teacher. They might not think he's God, but, but, but they kind of have this affinity for him. Um, but uh, most of what we know of him and his disciples in the New Testament would have been offensive to his contemporaries and still is offensive today. So we're just going to go through all the ways that Jesus would have been offensive in, in his culture. Uh, this is going to be fun, very interesting. Now, to set this up, we have to understand the cultural context of the New Testament and the Bible. So ancient Israel, first century Israel, was an honor-shame society, okay, as opposed to what we are in America, which is guilt innocence. So in an honor-shame society, the most important thing is that you honor your family and put them in a good light, and you do things to honor your family and community. In fact, many cultures today, especially in, in the East, are very much like this, right? So if you go to Japan or Korea, very honor-shame, China. Um, if you remember in World War II, um, oftentimes Japanese soldiers, if they were captured, well, what would they do to themselves? They would kill themselves. They would do uh, seboku, which is really gross. They would just do this, and then they would die. Well, wh why would they do that? Right, because in their mind, death would be better than shame, than dishonoring their country, right? And so, in, so that's the sort of culture Jesus was in here. Um, honor was everything, and shame was to be avoided at all costs. And so when you look at it from that perspective, Jesus was pretty scandalous for his day. Um, <coughs> definitely not like this, like, uh, like, Everyone loves Jesus, but during this day, he would have been seen as kind of like this rebel almost. Um, all right, so let's start at the, at the beginning. Jesus' virgin birth created a scandal at the very beginning of his life. Think about this. So he would have been seen as someone who was born out of wedlock. Um, so um, imagine if you're actually virgin born in this culture. What would uh, your friends and family think? They'd be like, oh, virgin born, okay, right, that's, that's how you're explaining it, right? Um, especially since uh, sexual sin was very serious in first century Israel, slurs against parentage uh, were extremely offensive, and rumor would have even spread that Jesus was a mamser, or well, a bastard. And this isn't just speculation here. Um, <coughs> in John 8, 18 uh, through 41, it says, and they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. So Jesus is having a spat with the Jewish leaders here. Um, Jesus said, well, look, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, 
which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. And guess how they respond to him? This is a mic-dropping moment. They say, well, hey, look, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Ooh, this would have been like a major diss, right? So they're... Because of the virgin birth, they would have thought that he, that he was born out of wedlock, and this would have been like a really, really offensive thing to say to him. Um, now, he wasn't born out of fornication, he was virgin born, but you could understand how this would have created an awkward scenario for him. Um, and uh, I, now, if you're making up a Messiah, why would you include this in there, right? This is such an, a weird, offensive thing for someone to say to him. He's from where? Right? John 1 is kind of interesting. It says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one who Moses wrote about in the law, the one the prophets foretold, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's like, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? He's like, Wait, 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 stop. He's from where? Now, what's the deal with Nazareth? We're so used to hearing Jesus of Nazareth, but what's the deal with that town and that area that would have been so offensive? Well, there's some interesting historical background here. Um, <clears throat> so Nazareth was four miles from the city of Sipporah, the capital of Galilee, during Jesus' day. Um, and so Sipporah is, so Nazareth is a really small town, and four miles away is Sipporah, which is kind of where they probably would have gone for groceries and kind of like the, like the big city. Um, and uh, here's some interesting historical tidbit, <clears throat> really fascinating. After Herod's death in 4 BC, the Roman army put on a rebellion in Sipporah. So at this time in Israel, uh, they are occupied by the Roman Empire, right? So Rome comes in, occupied, and did, did the Jews of that day like that? No, no, they did not want their homeland um, ripped apart by Gentiles, right? And so there were all kinds of rebellions to overthrow the Roman Empire. <coughs> and uh, there was this rebellion where they numbered several thousand were killed. However, according to the historian Josephus, right there, 2,000 of them were kept alive to be crucified on its streets and close by roads. When I first read this, I couldn't believe it, but it's true. So there was this, thousands of Jews rebelled in this city, but the Romans captured 2,000 of them and saved them just to crucify them all over town. Can you imagine how insane this would have been? Like, could you imagine just walking around town with 2,000 people crucified? I mean, you could probably hear the screams for, for miles. So it's absolutely horrific. I mean, this is like, uh, like a Jewish 9-11 here, like absolute tragedy. Um, now, why did the Romans do this? You can guess. To instill fear in others who might consider rebelling against Rome. It's like, if you're going to think about a rebellion, just look around. <laughs> and so, naturally... Nazareth and Sipporah and this whole region was notorious, right? It was kind of like a, it was kind of like the other side of the tracks, like like it was it was infamous for this massive murder tragedy. So why on earth, if you're making it up, why would you have the Messiah come from there? Why not pick anywhere else to have him from? But yet he's from Nazareth. In fact, N Nazareth was so small. Um, that historians for a long time didn't even think it even existed. 
Now they've found evidence for it, of course, but um, so small that it's like if you're, if you're going to have the Messiah come from anywhere else, why not say he's from Jerusalem? Why not say, I don't know, he's, he was born in the temple itself, right? If, 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 if you're just spinning yarns here. So he's, <laughs> he's from where? So, so naturally, um, Nathaniel's thing, can anything good come from Nazareth, makes more sense now, does it, right? Because he's like, whoa, 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 you know? It'd be like if I said, hey, we, we found the Messiah. He's from Manasseh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking. Manasseh's not that bad. I come from Appleton West, so that, that, that was kind of like our enemy. So, Yes, okay. I had to pick a town, right? I could have said Pulaski or something, okay. Um, ooh, no, okay. Um, so... How about this? Was Jesus crazy and insane? There's this episode in uh, Mark 3. It says, Jesus went home and once again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples uh, could not even eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take custody of him saying, he's out of his mind, (laughs) right? Which makes sense. Like, I mean, how many of you guys have, have sons, right? So your son goes out claiming he's God incarnate. How would you react, right? You'd be like, we, we got to get an intervention going on here, right? Um, and uh, Jesus saying stuff like, your eternal destiny depends on believing in me. Like, you'd be like, whoa, right? Um, and uh, so they thought he was kind of c- crazy. Again, kind of a weird thing to include in there if you're just making up a story, right? It's very understandable. I don't think he was out of his mind, but you could see how how they would perceive that. Um, (coughs) A glutton and a drunkard? So Jesus was viewed as, by many, as being socially taboo and even immoral. Um, The Pharisees just hated this guy, right? Um, Matthew 11 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Luke 15 says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. But the religious people, they're like, "Uh uh-uh. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. To eat with someone in that day was to share like solidarity with them. Um, and, uh, and so he was viewed, because he associated with the lowly and the socially marginalized, he was seen as like this rabble rouser. Uh, and it's just kind of something to think about for this morning. God incarnate literally shows up on earth and where does he make a beeline to? The most marginalized, socially outcast people in all of society. Tax collectors, sinners, drunkards, right? Now, I don't think he approved of their moral behavior, but he associated with them and loved them. So that's just something to think about. Um, if, if we, if we want to be like Jesus, we've, we've got to be for the poor and, and, and for the marginalized, okay? In fact, who did Jesus get the most angry at? Religious Pharisees and hypocrites, right? So it was the religious people that he had the most scathing words for right? Um, which is interesting. Satanic Harry Potter Jesus? So, I'll explain. Um, 
to read about Jesus' life is to be confronted with his miracles, right? Page after page, Jesus is doing miracles, but yet many thought he performed them by the power of Satan. Uh, Matthew 12 says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed, saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But the Pharisees, you know, they're just sitting there, you know, mm -mm. they said, This man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. They're like, uh uh, it's Satan. Um, Now, Jesus was a logician, he was very smart. This is how he responded. He said, Guys, think about it. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, is he divided against himself? How will his kingdom stand? So he's like, guys, guys, think about it. I'm doing, if you say I'm doing my miracles by Satan, why would I cast the demons out? Wouldn't I want to, you know, keep them in? Right? So a house divided against itself can't stand. So um, he's calling out their uh, self-refuting claim here. In fact, Jesus is basically doing this meme with them, right? <laughs> he's like, think about it, guys, right? I got to throw some memes in there to connect with Gen Z here. Um, in fact, in the Babylonian Talmud, this is a Jewish document in the late first century, this is, this is what their explanation for Jesus was. It says, Jesus was hanged on the eve of Passover. He practiced sorcery and led Israel astray and enticed them into apostasy. Now, in saying that, did did they deny that Jesus did miracles? No. They're saying, I don't know, he's a wizard, right? He's a sorcerer. The, The devil made him do it. Right? So, they just didn't, so no one denied that he did miracles. They just gave this weird ex- explanation of it. Um, so I, I guess they thought he was a wizard of some variety here. You've got what a, a lot of scholars call the hard sayings of Jesus. So if you've read the Gospels, there's some pretty tough stuff in there, isn't there? Um, many of Jesus' sayings are difficult to swallow. Um, now, in Matthew 5:28, now remember, all Gospels are written by men. But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is all written by men. If you're making up, if you're putting words on Jesus' lips, why would you put that in there? <laughs> that's, that's, that's like really hard, right? Um, wouldn't you say like, well, you know, you, you can look but you can't touch or something like that. Instead, they have him say this. Matthew 5.20, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's pretty difficult. Like, your righteousness has to be better than the most holy people in the whole land. Well, that's a hard saying. Matthew 16, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Deny yourself take up your cross? Why would someone make that up? <laughs> like, so they're including all these sayings of Jesus that would be very easy to edit out, right? But instead, it's, it's just very difficult. That's why they're called the hard sayings. Luke 14, this famous one, if anyone wishes to come to me, and if he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Why? <laughs> 
If you're making things up, why would you have him say that? You've got to hate your family. Now, there's ways to explain that. But you can see how they included all of these really difficult sayings of Jesus, which is an indication that they're trying to give it to you straight, like, like what he actually said, which is interesting. A big one here was Jesus the blasphemer. One of the most shocking and offensive things he did was claim that he was God. Um, so he wasn't just a good moral teacher. He actually thought he was Yahweh himself. Um, John 17:5 in the high priestly prayer, he says, imagine if you're at a prayer meeting and someone prays this. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. You'd say, dude, do you think you're God or something? Right? So he's saying, Lord, I shared your glory with you before anything was created. Whoa, wait a minute, man. Um, John 8, 58, uh, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. He just just busts out the I am statement there. Um, And at this, they picked up stones to throw at him. They're like, whoa, you can't say that stuff. you got to die, basically. And we know he said these claims because in John 10, 33, the Jews answered him. They say, look, man, for a good work, we're not trying to stone you, but for blasphemy. Why? Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. (laughs) Like, (laughs) so there it is right there. Um, It's like, you can't say these things. Like, what, do you think you're God or something? Um, And... uh, Again, if he didn't make these claims in this uh, fiercely monotheistic Jewish culture, it'd be odd to have him say this if he, if he didn't actually say it. For example, Jesus before the high priest. This is in Mark 14. Some scholars think this is the, one of the clearest deity claims uh, in the New Testament. The high priests asked him, all right, tell us plainly, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And he says, I am. Right, so I am. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. So if you know your Bible, this is a reference to to, uh, Daniel 7, right? High priest tore his garments. So he did like a Hulk Hogan thing, you know, and says, what further witness do we need? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving of death. So whatever he said here, they're like, okay, now we know exactly who you think you are. And so Jesus thought he was the only son of God, God's final messenger, distinct from all the prophets, the heir of Israel, Yahweh himself. Some pretty wild claims if they're not true. Now, the final thing here, how might the crucifixion be the most embarrassing thing about Jesus? So we've talked about a lot of shocking things. Crucifixion might just take the cake here. So let's take a look at Jesus' crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. So, as you all know, crucifixion was an absolutely brutal form of punishment. I mean, when you really look into it, it's just hard to study because it's so gross. Um, In 1st century BC, the Roman writer and orator Cicero refers to it as, quote, that most cruel and disgusting penalty. He declares that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. He's basically saying, crucifixion's so bad, you should just not even think about it, Romans. Like, just completely put it out of your mind. And uh, 
in this honor-shame culture that I talked about, this was probably the worst thing that could happen to you um, by far. So the ultimate offense was Christ crucified. In fact, the cross was not even used by the church until about the third century as a, as a symbol. Um, and as you know, one of the most horrific forms of public execution ever invented, I'm not gonna go into the deep medical details. I do when I make a case for the resurrection um, for another time. In, in Jewish thinking, uh, one of my professors referred to it as a status degradation ritual. The whole point was to take you low and to lower your status. So it's not, it, it wasn't just about the pain, it was about the shame. Um, and we often see paintings of Jesus crucified with a little loincloth, probably naked. Um, you would often defecate on the, on the cross, arms outstretched to symbolize a lack of power. Um, and oftentimes more closer to eye level instead of like way high up because you've got to see your accusers and look them in the eye. Um, so this was a, a way to bring someone low and, and to, to go as far low as you could go as far as shame went. Now this is wild because this is God himself on the cross here. So this, is, this is how far God went to save you. So if you don't think God loves you, just look at the cross basically. Um, and uh, preaching of the cross was almost kind of a liability in the first century. First, first Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. They didn't know what to do with this. They're like, wait, wait, wait. Your new religion is built around a carpenter who got himself crucified? Like, that's, that's your religion? So stumbling block, Gentiles, it's just foolishness. And uh, we know this. Um, there was an archaeological discovery about 100 years ago called the Alexamenos Graffito. And it's very fascinating. So there's an ancient graffiti that mocked the crucifixion. It was discovered in Rome in 1857, well, 200 years ago. It was scratched in plaster on the wall of the Domus Galotiana in Palatine Hill. It dates to about circa 200. And so if we take another look at it here, that's what it is. The etching shows a crucified man with the head of a donkey. So this is like bathroom graffiti in Rome. Um, next to him is a smaller figure um, with an arm extended in his direction. Nearby are the crudely carved words in Greek that read, Alexamenos worships his God. So it's the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion. And what is it? It's a crucified donkey, right? The Romans were just like, this thing is ridiculous. They had, they had no idea what to do with it. But no matter how shameful it was, 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So somehow, Christianity had at its very core crucifixion. Well, how did that happen? How did this religion even get off the ground when you think about it? So here's the point. Why would anyone in their mind, in their right mind, make up a religion in first century Israel that revolved around their Messiah's shameful and humiliating crucifixion. Have you ever thought of that? How on earth, why would anyone start a religion with this 
at its center, a crucified carpenter. I mean, that's pretty much what it looked like. And it seems like because the cross was so central, basically it's got to be true. There's just no way they would have done this. And as you can maybe surmise here, there's almost an argument for the resurrection here, isn't there? So we think about the resurrection of Jesus, there's a new angle to all this. You've got, in history, you've got Jesus' shameful and humiliating crucifixion, super offensive, but then a few years later, boom, you've got the explosion of the Christian movement and the preaching of Christ crucified soon after. So how do we account for that? Well, it's almost like something had to happen that was so miraculous, so astounding, that it had to overcome the shame of the cross. Well, guess what that event was? It was the resurrection, right? So you literally almost have to have, I don't know, someone rise from the dead bodily to overcome the shame of the cross, right? Or else, if there was no resurrection, Christianity just wouldn't exist. No one in their right mind would have believed it because, you know, the cross at the center just wouldn't have made any sense. So there's almost an argument here for the resurrection, which I think is very interesting. So, as we wrap it up here, land the plane, the New Testament portrays Jesus as someone who was viewed as being a bastard child born out of wedlock from the notorious backwoods village of Nazareth. An insane preacher, a glutton and an alcoholic, a friend of prostitutes, outcasts, and losers, a sorcerer who got his powers from the devil, a teacher of hard-to-follow rules and commands, a blasphemer who thought he was God, and finally, a crucified criminal who died a shameful and dishonorable death. So with this portrait of Jesus, it's kind of a lot different than what a lot of people think, isn't it? And there's just no way that they're not telling the truth here because they included all of these shameful details about him, which should clue us in that they're trying to give it to us straight. They're trying to relay accurate history. So this is one of many angles you can do to establish the historical reliability of the Gospels. You can look at key clues in the text. And as we end here, none of this should surprise us, though. Anybody ever read the Gospel of Luke? Right? So you, you read Luke. If you've noticed, the prologue is really interesting. And I'll end with this. In Luke's prologue, because some people think the Bible starts with once upon a time, right? As, uh, like like some, some kind of fairy tale legend. This is how Luke starts. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having well, investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. That doesn't sound like once upon a time, does it? Right? Luke's just like, hey, I've been following this thing, I've interviewed eyewitnesses, investigated, and I'm going to lay it out to you, the exact truth. There you go, right? Um, so none of this should surprise us, because Luke says, this is what I'm going to do. And so here's one of many different reasons that we can use to trust the Bible. And um, hopefully this encouraged you this morning. 
give you some stuff to think about. So why don't we pray, and then we'll wrap it up, okay? So we thank you, Lord, that uh, you died in our place. You, you took our shame. Um, you, went, you went as low as you could possibly go, died the death of a, of a horrible criminal for our sins. And so I, I pray you would encourage us and, with this truth, um, to because you've done this to show how much you love us. And, so, and we thank you, too, for the breadcrumbs you put in Scripture, for some good evidence that, that we can know that what we're reading is true. Um, and uh, I just pray for uh, this morning and for the rest of the week that you'll just bless us as we follow you. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.